Okay, who are you? I played that uh, song. Well, first of all, I'm not your normal pastor, and uh, our normal pastor isn't here, and he's not normal either. So, <laughs> um, but I'd like to uh, welcome you, anyone who's here uh, for the first time, and I'd like you to uh, pray with me. I've not prepared this sermon. This is Dora. Would you stand up for a second? This is my beautiful wife on our our 34th wedding anniversary. Thank you. And one of the reasons I'm using this mic is because if I get anything wrong in this story, I've given her permission to come up and correct me. She usually does when I'm telling the story. Uh, This is kind of a story about how we met, but it's really a story of who I am, and I hope that you understand that this is a story about who you are, who you're called to be. I really feel like this fits into Dennis's uh, preaching. He's been talking about our identity. He's been talking about the fact that we're priests. And I think if we don't understand who we are, then we're not really going to be able to behave properly. The world says that we are what we do. And God says what we do is as a result of who we are. But many of us don't understand who we are. And that's what I hope that you understand more today. It's a, it's a lifelong process, and I'm still discovering it. Yesterday was my 61st birthday, and uh, my son uh, was, thank you, and my son was born on my birthday, and that was his 30th birthday. So uh, my brother sent me a message that says, you're, you know, you're really old when your kids are in their 30s, so... <laughs> Uh, First of all, I'd like to pray, and I'd like you to pray with me. I haven't really prepared this sermon, per se, deliberately. One, because it's our wedding anniversary, and that's how I got permission from my wife to preach when Dan has asked, because usually I prepare all week, and it's a burden for all of us. So that was the condition. And secondly, because I really want to give God the ability to do this. Uh, There's a scripture that says, Don't worry about what you're going to say when you're brought before the judge because the Holy Spirit will give you the words. And I interpret that to be, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're brought before anyone that you fear may judge you. And I don't think that you're going to judge me, but I could be afraid of that and anxious of that. And so I'm trusting in the Holy Spirit uh, for the peace to be able to do it, but more importantly so that the message that is delivered is his message. And that's what I'd like to pray about, and I'd like you to pray about that during the time that I preach. Lord, I come before you and acknowledge that you are God, you are holy, 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 holy is the Lord God. What an appropriate song to sing. We thank you for your holiness. We lift you up. You're everything. You are everything to us. There isn't anything else that's worth pursuing. Everything else is vanity and meaningless. We get so caught up in pursuing and worrying about the things of this world, which is so temporary, here today and gone tomorrow. We ask that you would give us the focus on you because you are everything to us. Lord, speak through me. Give me the words, only the words that you want me to say, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. I ask for the prayer of the Spirit to complete this prayer and to guide this sermon. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, I uh, was born uh, July 27th, 1952, 
And uh, the story goes that I was to be born dead because the umbilical cord was wrapped around my throat. And it was so believed that my parents called in a priest to do last rites. And uh, so the last rites were performed. And if you know anything about that, it's a prayer for healing as well as a prayer that if you die, that you're going to go to heaven. Well, in this case, you know, it was told to me that the prayer for healing actually worked, and I would would have a hard time arguing with it since I'm standing here today. Um, And I say that to you because there was a priest involved in this. And although I've thought of this for a long time, it's just crystallized in the last few weeks that 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 is who I am. I'm a priest of God. That's who God has called me to be. And I say that with, you know, unashamedness only because it's initiated by God. And that was the first instance of that, that a priest was there and anointed me, I believe, to be a priest from the earliest beginning. I have the earliest memory I have is as an infant. And uh, I don't have a great memory of my childhood, just some few things. But I have this first memory, and I was an infant. And I remember, I I don't remember whether I was on my stomach or my back, but I remember that I wanted to turn over. And I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. But somewhere deep within me, even though I hadn't prayed the prayer, somewhere deep within me, I knew that God could help me turn over. And in my non-English inner vocabulary, I asked God to help me turn over, and I remember turning over and thinking nothing of it, you know, like this is the way to live. Wouldn't it be nice if that's the way we lived all the time, that we trusted that God was going to help us to do the things that we don't know how to do? And so that's my earliest memory. So I share that because... God was in my life in in a personal way in the beginning, and I knew him personally. Uh, I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy. Uh, I went to a Catholic school. I went to Mass and Communion every day until I was in the eighth grade, went to a Catholic high school as well. Um, And in, I don't know, I'd say sixth, seventh, eighth grade, maybe before that, I wanted to be a priest, and I believed that there was a calling And this is something that you don't hear about too often. This was something that was preached about uh, quite a bit. But we are called. God has chosen us and created us uniquely for a unique purpose. As Rick Warren says, we're created on purpose with a purpose. But most of us don't know what that is. Or we don't believe that God would call us to be it. And you might be saying, well, you know, you're a counselor and, you know, you had all of this stuff like the seminary training and everything else, so that's, that's okay for you, but not me. I'm just a, a worker in a factory or something like that. No, 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 no. That's the lies of the enemy. Each one of us is unique. You have a thumbprint that's unlike anybody else's that has ever existed or will ever exist. And don't you dare believe the lies of the enemy that says you're not special. That's one, of his, that's one of his greatest tactics is to get you to doubt either God or yourself and preferably both. And that's where we start believing the lie, and that's where we get stuck. If the truth sets us free, then it's the lie that binds us. 
So we believe the lie that we're not special, that there's not anything really important that we're supposed to do in this life, that we're not, you know, someone who stands out for the kingdom and we don't really behave very well. No, that's not it. It's not about our performance. It's about Christ's finished work. He said, it is finished. And yet we don't operate out of that position of grace most of the time. And I confess that I don't either. And that's just something that's very, very hard to do and extremely important to recognize that it's hard to do and to stop trying to do it and believe that Jesus already fixed it so that we could do it if we operate in his grace, if we operate, as the message says, in the unforced rhythms of grace. If I had to boil down a a recipe for Christian living, I would say that all you have to do, this is not easy, but all you have to do is to stay focused in the present moment of reality and do what you know is right in your heart. God gave you a conscience and allows you to know what's right. We get distracted by worrying about uh, the future, regretting the past, and as a result of that, we don't really stay in the present. We don't hear that still small voice that's directing us to do what is right in that moment. So the biggest thing that we have to overcome many times is just the ability to stay focused in the moment, which is very difficult. We live in an attention deficit society. We are overstimulated by everything, distracted by everything. When do we be still? The most important line in the Bible, in my estimation, is be still and know that I'm God. It implies that if you can't be still, you can't know God. Now, how can you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you can't know God? And how can you know God if you can't be still? And that's what the Bible says. What's the one thing we don't know how to do in this culture? Be still. The TV's got to be on. The radio's got to be on. Something's got to be happening. We've got to have a plan. Jesus, our God, the Father, rested on the seventh day. Jesus was involved because it was through him that all things were created. They rested on the seventh day. Many times we work on the seventh day. Not necessarily work, work. Sometimes church work. I'm very grateful for our church for very many reasons. One of them is that we don't have a four-hour service and a second service in the evening. I wouldn't be here if we did. Uh, many times I leave shortly after it. It's not because I don't like you. It's because I like my couch on Sunday. I, I do. I need it. I minister all week long. I'm drained. If I don't give my body rest, then I, I won't be able to go forward. So anyway, back to the theme here. We're all called. I was called to be a priest. I, I even signed up for Latin in high school and uh, because the you know mass was done in Latin, so I had to learn it. I took four years of Latin in high school. Um, but high school, I met girls. <laughs> And uh, I forgot about my calling. And I don't, in retrospect, I was just thinking this today, it wasn't just because girls were so attractive and I liked them so much. There was something inside of me that says, yes, you know, 
to be married, to have a partner. I remember laying in bed when I was a kid feeling so lonely, and I said, I can't wait till I grow up and I have someone to sleep with. And I wasn't even thinking about sex at that time. It was pre-puberty. It was just to have a companion, to have someone to be with. I didn't want to be alone. My brother that I slept in his room for many years, you know, he and I were very close until he met his girlfriend, and, you know, then uh, he left me, as I thought, and didn't love me anymore, and that was probably my first great loss. Um, um, and, and it hurt my heart, you know. But that, that's the kind of calling that I understand now was a calling to be married. But in the Catholic Church, being called to be a priest and being called to be married didn't work. So I didn't quite understand it, but on February 3rd, 1973, after three years of riotous living and uh, experiencing my life in the pig pen, I had my conversion experience at a rock concert with uh, the Yes, who was playing at the time. And um, let's just say that I wasn't in a normal breathing air state at that time. Um, and during this concert, uh, where my senses were accentuated, um, I realized that I was being selfish. There was a pair of binoculars that I had that we were passing around, and one of my friends was hogging the binoculars. And I thought, wow, that's my, those are my binoculars. I want them. You know, I want to see through them because we were way far away from the stage. And this was the first time that I was bummed out in the party mode. And I thought, there's something wrong here because I thought I had found, you know, the only thing that made any sense. I knew money wasn't it. I knew prestige wasn't it. I had discovered love, and I thought that was it until I was betrayed and burned and my heart broken into a thousand pieces. So I had given up on anything, everything except for, you know, having a good time with my friends. And, you know, this was, I graduated high school in 1970, you know, for the age of free love. And, uh, you know, I didn't withhold that from myself. I'm not proud of that, but that's just what happened. And so here in this situation, I realized that I was being selfish. And I remember what my father said. He said, if you're going to be happy in life, if you want to be happy in life, you can't be selfish. And I realized that's the reason that I was bummed out. And when I realized that, I remembered everything that my father stood for, and that was God. He built his life on God. He wasn't perfect, but he built his life on God. He went to Mass and Communion every day for 40 years. You don't do that out of a religious duty. He had a love for God. I saw it in him. That's how I came to know God, not because I prayed the prayer, not because of anything other than seeing it in my parents. They both loved God. They did it in the Catholic religion. Who cares? You know, I learned about God, and I'm so grateful. So after that experience, I left engineering school. I knew that wasn't for me. I was just going there because my mother wanted me to have a good job because they live uh, in a good education, a good job because they lived through the Depression and were traumatized by it. Uh, that was my excuse to get out because that wasn't me. Um, I had wanted to be a psychologist at Xavier University, but my parents didn't have any money. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that's where Xavier University is. I went over there for a... Uh, symposium, and 
I saw these rats going through this maze, and it seemed pretty interesting. I wanted to do that. But um, I wasn't able to do that, so I went to engineering school because it was a co-op program and I could afford it. Um, after I had that conversion experience, I says, I don't need this anymore. I know that the God doesn't want me to do this. I asked God that night, do you want me to be married? He said yes. I called my old girlfriend. I quickly determined that she was not the one that I was to be married to. Um, I left General Motors Institute in Flint, Michigan, came back home to Cincinnati, thumbed out west, lived in the mountains in Arizona for a little while, became a vegetarian, thumbed back to Cincinnati, got my car, went back to San Diego now where my friend who had also left uh, GMI was, and we lived together in a little house in San Diego. We were going to establish, uh, res I was going to establish residency. You could uh, go to school at California for free if you have, if you're a resident. And I was going to complete my engineering degree, civil engineering. He and I were going to get homesteading land in Oregon. We were going to find the perfect women and uh, go up there. And uh, I married Dora. He made, he married Dory. <laughs> so, but on July 4th, 1973, I was so strong in the faith that I was waiting for my wife because the two previous July 4ths had been wonderful experiences with two different women. So I thought three's my number. I thought third time's a charm. She's going to come. And I was, I was actually waiting. I'd go to our front door, and we had a walkway from the um, street. I was so strong in my faith because I was new in the faith. I kept going to the door and waiting for her to walk up and say, God sent me to you, I'm supposed to be your wife. I kid you not, that's, that's exactly the way that I believed. And I was really disappointed when it didn't happen. So my friend and I asked him, I said, do you want to go to the movies? And he said, yeah. So we went and saw Jesus Christ Superstar. And that movie, the passion scene in that movie is probably the most powerful, I, I would say in one way. I mean, the passion of the Christ, you, I don't think you can top that. But in, in Jesus Christ Superstar, with the music, for me at the time, it was the most powerful depiction of the passion that I had ever seen. And it just moved me to tears. I came back to the house. For some reason, I prayed, Lord, if you want me to be a priest, give me a sign. I was overwhelmed with a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I was just bawling like a little baby, and I knew from deep within me that he had called me to be a priest. However, I was somewhat confused because I was asking for a wife that day. But I had made enough mistakes in my relational history to trust God more than I trusted myself. And I said, okay, you want me to be a priest, I'll be a priest. And I called my dad up that day. We had gone on a, a retreat to the Passionist right before I left from Cincinnati together. I called him up, and I said, God called me to be a priest. I says, call him up and sign me up. And he did. And I left shortly after that, uh, drove back home, and went into the Passionist Seminary in December of 1973. Now, while I was there, I said, Lord, you brought me here. And if you ever want me to leave, you're going to have to show me out. And the secret petition of my heart that I didn't even have the courage to pray to God was, and that would be all right with me, God? Because I really, I didn't want to be on my own. But I believe that God knew what was best for me. 
seek the kingdom first and everything else will be given. So I tried to rationalize why God brought me there. And I thought, well, the longest I've ever been able to sustain an infatuation in love experience was two years. So I thought, two years isn't enough to sustain marriage. And since that was the only thing that I thought love was, that in love, magical, stardust fairy tale, uh, I said, well, that, that's probably why he brought me in here, because he knew I wouldn't be satisfied with one woman. Uh, so I justified that while I was there. And then in July of 1978, I did a chaplaincy training course uh, at Hartford Hospital. Um, I was going to be in the western province, which ended at Pittsburgh, I believe, and I had never been to the east. I had been all over the rest of the country, but not to the east. So I thought I'd go to the east because I knew I wouldn't have a chance to go to the east after I became a priest in the western conference. Um, So I came here to the land of the frozen chosen. Boy, was it a culture shock. Oh, my goodness gracious. I said, who are these people? They don't look at you. They don't say hello. You know, they don't smile. Really, it was depressing. It took me a while to get over it. Um, And it wasn't until I became a counselor that I accepted it because I says, well, there's a lot of crazy people with money here, so I guess I can (laughs) be here. Uh, There's a lot of crazy people everywhere. But uh, anyway, so I settled in um, to my role at the chaplaincy training course, and I was I had asked to be on any floor except a cancer floor because I had been on cancer floors before and my brother had recently died of cancer and I had enough cancer. Where'd they put me? On a cancer floor. Um, my wife was a nurse on the floor that I was a chaplain on. And I used to go around and because I didn't remember names very well, I still don't, and I'd write down the person I'd get to know the nurses because the nurses knew who the people that needed a chaplain were. So I'd write down the name, and I'd write down a description, like this is uh, Debbie, and she's tall and has long brown hair or something like that. And I met Dora, and and, uh, I wrote down, this one's nice. (laughs) And she is nice most of the time. (laughs) You can come up here anytime and change. That's why I'm using this microphone. So anyway, um, so... You know, we talked, and and she had been in a relationship, but she had become a Christian during that relationship, and she was disturbed about that because he wasn't a Christian, and she thought I was a married minister. I wore a coat and tie, and then one time I came in with a collar, and that freaked her out, but um, she talked to me about it because she was, you know, just wanting to discuss it, and... um, it was, it was a connection that we made that was very, it was purely platonic. I felt like I was ministering to her. And, and at one point, she said, you know, it seems like you got your life all together and you're planned. I had, I, was, I had plane tickets for my final vow retreat. I was three months away from taking final vows. And I was a year and a half away from being ordained. And she felt like she had no direction in her life. And... Uh, didn't know where she was at, and she cried, and and it was not abnormal for me because I grew up in Cincinnati to hug anyone that was crying. Uh, I know it's a little abnormal here, but uh, so I hugged her, and 
I remember feeling like it wasn't anything sexual at all. It was, it was like, yeah, this, this is who God called me to be. And so I asked God uh, over a period of a few weeks, and on August 3rd uh, at uh, quarter after three, three threes, told you my number's three, uh, I had decided that I should leave and check the, this out. And uh, that was confirmed for me through that and many other things. So I left for a year. I asked for a year's leave of absence from the seminary. And uh, on July 28th, the day after my 27th birthday, Dora and I were married. And so I've, I've lived with this kind of discrepancy. I was called to be a priest, but I was called to be married. And I actually struggled with this afterwards. I started to doubt whether or not I was doing the right thing. I moved away from my family. I started doing drafting work after doing ministry. I knew it wasn't what I was supposed to do. You know, I was certainly loved and accepted by my wife, but I didn't know anybody else. And again, the frozen chosen weren't too friendly. Um, so it, it was, I was wondering, did I do the right thing? And I actually thought I had made a mistake and I went to the priest, uh, one, uh, the only priest who was a psychologist in The Passionist, and I had a counseling session, the first counseling session of many to follow. And he said to me when I told him I thought I'd made a mistake, he said, you probably did the best thing you ever uh, could have done. I said, what? He said, because now you're going to have to learn to do for yourself what only you can do for yourself. The romantic mythology of our society says that you're going to find your soulmate and he's going to complete you or she's going to complete you and everything's going to be fine and you're going to live happily ever after. Uh, I'm here to tell you that that is a lie. Don't believe it. We're to find our everything, as Carissa so beautifully sang, in God and God alone. If you look for it in anything or anyone else, you will be very, very disappointed, very frustrated. There is nothing. St. Augustine says our hearts are restless until they rest in him. We have a God-shaped vacuum, and only God can fill it. If we put anything or anyone above that, we are in big trouble. And if you live that way, you will be in misery until you discover the truth that you have gone the wrong way. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. He's the only Savior. And not just to initially save you. We need saving every day. Every day. I've had headaches ongoing for four and a half years, over four and a half years, that I'm praying end today, but I'm praying that they end at least when I get this website up for the new ministry of uh, Christian meditation and contemplative prayer, which I believe God is calling me to now. Again, calling. God's calling us. Who's he calling you to be? Who are you? What does, what does he say in the stillness of your heart about who you are supposed to be right now? Live that. Believe that. Understand that. Hear the still, small voice. He's not just talking to me. God's not a respecter of persons. 
I've probably committed more sins than everybody in here. I held back no pleasurable thing, as Solomon said. I'm not worthy of this. The only thing that qualifies me for relationship with God is my sin. And I've been recently convicted again. And healthy shame has brought about a new revival of repentance and dependence upon him. I can't do anything apart from him. And you can't either. But when we realize that, that's freeing. And our good works, forget it. As uh, Dennis had said a while back, preaching about the Galatians, and I'll paraphrase the book of Galatians for you. Paul basically said to the Galatians, what are you, nuts? You've been saved by grace, and you're going to go back to works? Are you crazy? You were under the load of the law, and you couldn't do it? All you experienced was frustration and disappointment and self-condemnation, and you're going to go back to it? The truth is, is that we're the Galatians. We, we preach grace and practice works. All of us. We sin, we don't like ourselves for it, we condemn ourselves for it, and we try harder. Good luck. It doesn't work. I want to honor our uh, summertime, uh, and I want to close, and I want to close with a video that really emphasizes this. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's grace and grace alone. I'd like to invite you, as you watch this video, to pray within yourself and confess the sin of works and trying and let Jesus revive you and birth you again. Pray that in Jesus' name. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's... This is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore? Deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper. What, what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, we want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. 
they give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience of Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. And God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. When I look at the story, I realize who Barabbas really is. That's me. That's you. That's us. And I thought I was reading this the other day, and I felt God speak to me. I love Barabbas. I love him. But God, he's a bad man. I love him. And I wanted him to go free. But didn't you know that he probably would have never acknowledged the freak yet? Yeah, but I love Barabbas. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from Jesus and his free gift and never come back. He loves them. And the nerve, the call, the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I better work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't! You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own merits, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me and say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No.
so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, Go, son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were going to set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son, Jesus. He's enough for us. Thank you that we don't have to work our way there because we can't. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. We don't deserve it, but you give it to us anyway. And all we have to do is receive it. Help us to stop believing the lies of the accuser. Help us to stop condemning ourselves. Help us to stop hating ourselves, even though we still sin. Help us to give us, give you our sin, even as we're doing it, without condemning ourselves, without hating ourselves but with true contrition. It should be a sad gladness. We're sad that we're sinning, but we're glad that you've taken it, that you've paid for it, that we don't have to work about it, because we can't. All we come to you with is our sin, and we thank you that your blood washes it away forever. We thank you that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We thank you that this world is not the end. We thank you that someday 
we will live with you and be in communion with you. We thank you for the rewards that you've laid up for us, the place that you've prepared for us. We thank you that one day we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that the Holy Spirit would manifest himself inside of your heart in a special way and bring to you any part of this message that is meant just for you. There's a part that's meant just for you. Receive it. Meditate upon it. Stay with it until God gives you another word. Don't rush through it. Stay with the word that God gave you today. I pray this. I ask God to bless all of us. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.